Hello, and welcome to ACX Everywhere 2023. I'm Andrew Wilson, and this episode is a conversation recorded at an ACX Everywhere meetup in Houston, Texas in October of 2023. The meetup was at Segundo Coffee Lab, which was awesome. There's local art everywhere. There's coffee and snacks, drinks, and it's a beautiful space and key in Houston. It has great AC. So just wanted to say I really appreciate the post cynical optimism displayed by everyone in this episode and just wanted to thank Joe for organizing. And yeah, thanks to everyone who participated. I think it turned out great. Hope you enjoy. And yeah, four of us on right now. We can introduce ourselves if we'd like. I'm Mr. Soy. Okay. Hello, Mr. Soy. Yeah. I made a soy that's about to me. We're I'm all made of a little bit of soy. <laughs> <laughs> Nathaniel. All right, I'm I'm Elmer. And there we go. So I have a topic that I can discuss. Uh, discuss. And I would actually be curious about Elmer. You're not as you're not as into EA, right, or at all. I just a little bit. I've been to like one meeting. Nathaniel's more invested in this. So maybe this is a little bit more for him. But you know, in the past, I have been not as excited about the idea of simply promoting EA. But the more I reflect about my own like moral progression, I think that if EA wasn't a an idea like floating in the kind of the cultural landscape, it would have been much more costlier and less likely that I would have be as caring about like morality as I do today, even though I can care about it a lot more. And I think that kind of in some ways gives weight to these ideas of like you know, religion and other cultural norms of providing basically like a moral template for people. Because I think there's so many people, like when I look around people my age, especially those who are like in STEM degrees that go and will start making like 60 grand to 100 grand right out of college. And I'm like, oh my God, like you do not appreciate how much moral opportunity you have to make the world better. But I also can't blame them. I think, and I, and I wouldn't have had that mindset if it wasn't for something like EA. So now, in my mind, I think it's like really good to promote EA. Do you feel similarly or differently? I think I have maybe a different perspective from my background because I definitely was very interested in what you might call heterodox moral theories as a young person. You know, back in high school, uh, Andrew, I can see you smiling over there because we talked about this a little on yep. podcast. No, we did. But I definitely had a perspective of, you know, caring about morality, caring about different schools of morality, and also came to the conclusion that, you know, religious background or something like that provides a lot of foundation, even if I don't agree with the thought process behind it or all the results. And there's just going to, you know, throw in the ACX. Well, used mm -hmm. to be SSC back when this was put out. Yep. Think about the idea of like a subway map theory of morality, where it's like there's certain stretches where everything's the same, but then out at the ends, you know, if you're going to different destinations, you're going to end up in different places. And I think that, I think that the EA community and the EA philosophy and promotion has been helpful in that it, I think it's been very clearly helpful in that it's putting ideas out there and definitely presenting the moral opportunities. You can donate to, you know, major causes. And there's definitely a lot of people who do not appreciate, you know, how how well off they are compared to how much suffering there is. But I, I think EA has also been very useful in that showing there's a lot of ability to affect real change. Because for a long time, I looked at that and saw just bottomless well of suffering that there was, you could donate, you know, all your money and you wouldn't accomplish anything. And the idea that actually you can save a life for very little money 
Or you can look at it as, you know, you buy some bed nets and you give mosquito-free sleep to somebody for a year for, I, I want to say the figure is like $5 or something, but I don't actually know off the top of my head if that's wrong. Please don't quote me on it. Go Google that. But looking at it that way makes it much more appealing to actually help people because you realize that it, there are very real results that can be affected very quickly. I think you're, pro you're probably much more intellectually curious than I was. I think I got into some like non-mainstream moral ideas, but I probably was a bit more of an ideologue than you were. And so, you know... I mean, you didn't know me in, as a teenager. I was, I was <laughs> so I think EA is valuable and simply that it kind of, it creates a really good moral market in that it presents all these different like possible moral things that you could get into that you might not be aware of before. But, you know, when you were saying that, like, you're already into heterodox ideas, it did also uh, kind of clarify this idea in my head of why EA valuable is because it seems like there's this actual impetus, this momentum. And, you know, maybe in some cases also this social pressure to actually act on your morals instead of just reading about them. And I think that is also something that you don't get unless you're part of some church who's like, hey, we're going to go volunteer on Sunday. You're part of this church. You should go and join. So it's a way for like wealthy, secular people to actually like have a community that. And I think these communities are really important in terms of directing and igniting human behavior. And I don't really see many things analogous to EA, which makes me value it more and more. Yeah, and I would also say that the rationalist side of it's very important in that the thing I really value about EA, especially is the effective part and trying to figure out where do you actually make an impact? Because I mean, I was involved in various volunteering opportunities through school, through my parents' church or through scouting or, you know, different organizations. but. Looking back on it, it's like the amount of work we put in for the benefit people actually got was often very small when you really think about it. It's like, let's, like, I remember this one thing I did, which I'm not going to name any names or anything because there's big corporations that might get mad if I mention <laughs> their volunteering events. But, um, you know, they had this, you know, give back to the community kind of thing or they... We should mention that Nathaniel's your fake name. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is not actually, but the, you know, we had a, you know, thing where they got a bunch of high school students to go around and, you know, do like manual labor kind of tasks in, you know, genuinely like low income communities that were probably the people really appreciated what we did. And I'm not going to deny that it had an impact on their lives, but it probably would have been a better use of time and energy if we just worked and donated the money and gotten professionals to do it. Because I like I was doing like painting or something, but I wasn't a professional. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I probably did a terrible job and they could have gotten somebody who actually knew what they were doing and done way more for the same investment in resources. Higher leverage. Earlier you were talking about those students who are taking up those like six figure jobs. Do you think it would be more, it'd be more beneficial instead to just like try and like target them after the fact instead of just like trying to get them like during, I guess, school or whenever they're. It's, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think agnostic to that, but. I am, I do think that if there was this general cultural idea similar to kind of EA represents, would be massively beneficial. I think you certainly have like certain religious communities which have an expectation that you're going to give a certain amount to the church. And because of that, many people do it simply because of that social pressure. 
Now, I'm not too excited about the idea of giving that to the church, but I do, I do appreciate the social dynamics. And I also appreciate that even when people are very moral, they got good intentions, they got like a lot of empathy, and they perhaps have skills, they still lack that ability to kind of transform their moral ideas into a real moral impact. Right. There's no structure for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, human beings are, we, they're really guided by, you know, sociality in a lot of ways. Like, for example, like I will like be in a bum mood and then I'll go to a gym class and I'll just be doing, I'll just be going through the motions for the first five minutes. But then like the five minute, 10 minute mark, my usual enjoyment and interest in, in yeah. athletics turns up, kicks in. And now, now I don't need everybody. Now I'm basically, I can do the rest by myself. Yeah. But the, when the, when you AB test that personally and I go to the gym and I'm, it's not a class, I'm still in that bum mood. I don't, it's hard, much, much harder for me to get out of that bum mood. But so, you know, like having that social group can really help motivate and get action it's to a happen. catalyst for you. Yeah, a catalyst. But you don't really have an equivalent of that in the moral scape. I mean, the moral landscape. And you kind of have the closest thing to that, I think, would be EA. I yeah. The shared suffering, I think, the gym and the EA and volunteerism, it's kind of like a shared communal public suffering, you know, like like skin in the game on some level. Like everyone can see that everyone is suffering and we're all doing it together. No one's a free rider, you know, like there's social proof that at least we everyone who showed up or some level or whatever the whatever the activity is right like doing it together communally i think is is big and then this there's something about shared suffering that really unites people right when you suffer with people publicly it's some kind of i don't know it's a bonding experience of some type i don't really know how to quantify yeah, it or talk I mean, about I, it I definitely think that you know i'm very anti-suffering in general <laughs> but i have i have definitely seen that you know my senior design class where we're all in the design lab in the middle of the night being tortured the weekend, <laughs> you know, because we got a report due the uh, Monday after Thanksgiving or whatever. That was, that was a fun, that was a fun experience. But that was, we had that shared experience. The thing I think about is like the infrastructure thing that you, you were saying earlier, where for me, it's, it's nice that I can just know that if I go to givewell.org and just donate, I can do that very easily. It's very, it's very low friction. And that, you know, having that around is much easier to get people to donate and donate a lot than, you know, if I have to go get up early in the morning on my Saturday and go to some place where I'm doing, you know, whatever, you know, manual labor that's uncomfortable or whatever versus, you know, I use my, you know, comparative advantage at my, you know, high paying tech job and then just, you know, throw a bunch of money at, suffering in Africa or whatever, you know, whatever give, give well says is the most effective thing. That's very easy. And, you know, it, it doesn't require a whole lot of effort, but you, you still get the goods. And that's the thing that I really care about is getting the goods. I think that's a really great point in that it's making taking moral action easier. Like one of the things that I think is analogous to this is that before the replication crisis, there was a lot, there's a huge poverty and there still is, but a huge poverty software engineering for research. So this would be software tools that make research easier. And one of the things that emerged out of the replication crisis was this program called StatCheck, which will quickly uh, check p-values. And it's, it can just basically run and it basically, it takes what, had it, what it would have been a lot of intellectual labor before for somebody. Now it can be just done by a program. So now you're making the, the, the process of doing better science easier. 
And I think that's also perhaps not as uh, it's not as appreciated enough, but EA has made giving to these effective causes easier than they would have been without it. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of that. But do you think that possibly like an LNM would make that a lot more effective? Like just in sort of like searching through every single paper and trying to look for like any small corrections that it could make? In terms of the stat check? I guess, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm ignorant of that, so I, I can't okay. say. Right. It was just Fair. for me an example of just something that made something that we'd all want yeah. Um, like better science easier instead of just pounding people scientists on the head like why aren't you double checking all these things yeah. you know we're just we're making it easier for them to double check we're lessening the cost of labor for that so i think that's another interesting part for ea is that it's also creating like moral infrastructure that makes taking good moral action easier than it would have been in the past yeah and i, I think um no i think a lot of the nonprofit industry is that's whole their whole value proposition is that we, well, when it's not grift, which hopefully none of the you know give well top charities are, yeah, but that definitely has been an issue in the past. The whole value proposition of these organizations is you write us a check, we handle the details, and we you know and because the whole idea of like a capitalist economy and even many non-capitalist economies is division of labor, you know, people specialize, you have a comparative advantage in such and such, you know. Yeah. If your comparative advantage is writing software for, you know, business to business applications, just make something up based on the buzzwords I see on Twitter. Excuse me, zitter. <laughs> zitter. Yeah, I, I saw that. I insist on saying it. That way. <laughs> you know, if your if your value proposition is that or if your value proposition is you know, designing oil pump equipment or anything like that, Figuring out how to donate, how to, well, let's not say donate, figuring out how to meaningfully help people in, you know, poverty is a whole separate job on top of that. Whereas you could make that its own job and then you just transfer the resources. You know, you use currency as a store value, transfer it. There you go. You know, and that that's the basic idea behind the dollar being the unit of caring. And I think that that's a very effective thing. And I think that embracing that wholeheartedly is one of the things that's made the effect of altruism, you know, community different from a lot of previous stuff. And so, you know, if I, you can think of one's life in probabilistic ways, right? There's one, one version of my life where I'm a much more moral person than I am now. There's also another version of my life where I'm a lot less moral person than I am now. And I think like we too much onus on thinking of we're whether a good person or a bad person. Or there's certainly some degree of how good and bad a person you are. But I think a bigger factor, I don't know, maybe it's not a bigger factor. Actually, I kind of think it is. Now I'm coming to the conclusion that it is. Mm -hmm. A bigger factor is simply what ideas have you been exposed to and what ideas have you not been exposed to? And have you been exposed to those ideas in a way that would be conducive to you understanding them? I feel quite lucky that I've been exposed to EA because it's very probable that I would have never been exposed to EA or I would have been exposed to EA when I'm 40 years old. And currently I'm making very different plans, very different plans than I would have if I didn't, wasn't exposed to EA. So in general, I think it's a really good idea to make it much more likely that your average person stumbles into EA. Do you think uh, social media is underutilized in order to, like, instead of, say, being, there's, like, the difference between being exposed to an idea as opposed to, like you say, being in that community, having that social pressure in order to, like, I get not, like, conform, but just feel like you're, you all have skin in the game. No. What, is there a big difference between, like, those two? 
or like at least yeah. for you personally do you think like there's a difference between you knowing about something and you being at the, within that community what's like the is there a gap there or i do think there's a in terms of the methods i don't know if the methods are an issue i think you have to be exposed to something and then you eventually if you do get on board with it you eventually become part of the community but I do think there is a huge difference between simply being exposed and actually being part of the community in terms of like taking action. I think generally speaking, people have much better moral ideas than their moral actions. What I mean, that seems kind of abstract and weird, so I'll try to break that down. Saying that people know how to take, how to live a more moral life than they're currently living, but they really struggle with the actual action of it and the actual implementation of it, right. which is less to do with reading moral philosophy and how good or bad of a person you are, and is more to do with how organized you are, how much are you focused on this goal, how much can you execute X, Y, and B. And that probably applies to more than just philanthropy, just basically anything. Just like environment. The environment is very determinative. Personal finances? Yeah. Personal health. Like mm -hmm. I mean, I've... I would account for that in what I would consider to be the right or wrong thing to do. The other thing I would say about the social media aspect, though, is that there is a big difference between exposure and then being onboarded. Like, I think that mm. the social proof aspect is kind of a thing or even just social pressure. I think, you know, especially I've, I've seen this on like effective altruism side of Zitter and <laughs> and, you know, there's spaces as well. But that's, you know, definitely... For me, seeing that, even as someone who didn't fully identify as an effective altruist and still doesn't, definitely made me feel more inclined to actually like start donating in this point, close to giving what we can amounts, even though I have no intention of like signing the pledge or anything. But the uh, just be just seeing that though, if you just saw all these esoteric memes about like shrimp suffering or whatever, right. that's probably going to push you away more than it's going to draw yeah. you in. And I think that that's a that's a problem with almost any social any yeah. like social political cultural movement is onboarding versus retention and that's right. and thing. and have you like I guess have you ever seen any like advertisement or anything like that where for like a philanthropic movement where instead of like like trying to tug on your heartstrings it like lays out some sort of logical argument not very often though i can't say i've never seen it there's this youtube channel called ferns or fern and it's just like random like documentaries about things it's just like it's intellectual but it's not in depth it's just a fun thing to like listen to and there's an eighty thousand hours ad in that which i was surprised okay. to see awesome and it was a simply like hey you have this great opportunity this is a, a program that is like interested in helping you maximize your app impact on the world. Okay. Which I thought was great because it was very, not too hard on the moral argument and more just like, hey, these are some very common things that most people would appreciate. Yeah. Here's a way to actualize on that. Yeah, I think uh, presenting it as, in terms of opportunity rather than a requirement, you know, has some value there and doing outreach in a way that yeah, you don't feel obligated to do something. It's just like, this is an opportunity for you in case mm -hmm. this is something that you personally like feel strongly about. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, based on my background in rationalism and different political organizations and stuff like that, I'm very aware of the, the issue with onboarding versus, you know, making the people who have already joined your community be happy. Uh, purity tests are a big oh, thing yeah. that happen yeah. a lot where it's like, okay, are you are you really, you know, one of us? And it's like, okay, but... Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Is it really that important versus agreeing with the big picture? Oh, man. Trying to set up in-group, out-group, out out uh, dichotomies is just, it seems really 
really prevalent in human systems, right? I, I think there's I mean, some very deep set architecture yeah. in our brains that really likes that sort of thing. Well, also you talk about virtue, you think about virtue, virtue signaling and status signaling in communities. Like, I don't know, just looking at the world, it seems to me we've moved much more. I mean, this is a Scott thing, right? Just quoting, just quoting Scott. Uh, it's so much easier to signal in-group status by like attacking the out-group, right? Than by actually trying to build or like network or do anything within the in-group. Right. Totally. It's his argument that that used to be different. Uh, no, I just, what's the name of the post? Like I'm okay with everything, but the out group or something oh, yeah. like I can that. Tolerate everything. Yeah. Everything I could think, except the I think that's it. Yeah. Something like that. His point was not that that's like a new thing. It's yeah. more that we think of ourselves as being, you know, very sophisticated. Then you realize, well, actually, no, it's just that. And he was doing that. He was saying he caught himself doing that you know he was writing this big blog post where he's talking about that was the one where he really introduced the red tribe versus blue tribe dichotomy i believe so and you and know the and at the beginning yep. he just mentions gray as a throwaway thing and he writes this whole big blog post criticizing blue tribe and at the end of it he's like i was a bad person and did the exact thing i'm criticizing <laughs> i became what i was afraid i became what i feared like, no, yes i'm not actually blue tribe i'm clearly gray tribe if i have this much fun <laughs> Complaining about Blue Tribe. And, and right. it doesn't matter which tribe you're in or which tribe you think you're in. If that's the way you're operating, you're operating under the same tribal mindset. And, yep. you know, big props to Scott for recognizing that, being self-aware enough to recognize that in himself and fess up to it yep. in front of what was in a much smaller audience than he has now. But I <laughs> do remember when that came out. I yeah. just started reading around that time. And it was, it was definitely had a big influence on my thinking about the world and, you know, moving past, you know, raw partisan politics and, I mean, that was the same time I was getting exposed to effective altruism as a concept and realizing, okay, well, maybe, you know, going from an idea of like, there's charity and it's either good or bad to the idea that there are different kinds of things that you can do and different impacts that these can have. And you should be trying to look for what, what's going to actually change the world in the way you want it to change. But social media is great for in-group, out-group signaling, right? Like really triggering hate and rage. You know, primarily envy, it seems. And those are more triggering of the limbic system, which generally, like Kahneman, fast and slow, right? The fast brain and the slow brain. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those things are much more, yeah, much more easy, much more easily trigger the fast system, right? <laughs> the limbic based system, the hormonal system, like the fight or flight system. A lot of that has to do with the algorithms that they employ. That's the most totally. profitable thing for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Time on site, right? Like yeah. optimizing time on site. So I mean, that's it. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, that, that's why they do it. But I mean, it, it's very much a deep seated thing in yeah. how humans behave. And I mean, I don't want to feel like that, but it happens to me. Yeah. You know, I, Same. I see something I don't like or and I, I feel attacked. I get worked up and it's like, you know, I'm happier when I'm just not online like that because then I'm not getting I don't feel that, you know, attack and also feels the sort of satisfying, you know, and Scott was talking about that to like you know, yell about how much you hate stuff yeah. or how much you dislike people, but it's not, um, I, I don't think it's really mentally healthy. And I certainly don't think it's epistemically healthy. I think that's a huge point about it not being epistemically healthy. It is surprising to me how somebody will not be that turned into a conversation. By conversation, I mean like the societal conversation around a topic and actually has better points, is more well-informed than somebody who is just like, so reactive and so gunhole, so ideological about a topic, even though the ideological person has put so much time in. But yes, I'm, Mr. Soy, you had a question. I am now going to turn on my put on the my devil horn. All right, and, do it. 
You only said negative things about virtue signaling, Andrew. Are there any positive things to it? So not net positive, or is it net negative? That is an interesting question about virtue signaling. I think virtue is obviously I think good. Yes. Virtue was a good thing. I think, yeah, I think, po yeah, exactly. Focusing on identifying virtue or, I mean, it's something I think about arate, like this Greek term meaning like excellence in the, in the most meta way you can mean excellence. I think it should be more about that. And then ideally the signaling is just something that happens on its own. But in, in a lot of religious traditions, I think Sikhism has this a lot too, where it's kind of like a two-part thing. It's like you're supposed to do good in the world and then also either optimizing for not caring about whether people see you, whether you're actually signaling status or not. And then some of them take it even so far to say that you're supposed to do good works and you're supposed to do everything you can to keep it secret. Because then you keep falling into the trap for doing it for the signaling reasons as opposed to for the virtue. And I don't have anything, there's nothing wrong with virtue signaling think as long as it's a byproduct of something else i do have problems with it when it's an end all on its own because it's kind of i don't know what is it something becomes when a metric becomes a measure it ceases to be like an effective metric Good hearts Good well. Well, yeah. Yeah. i think i kind of think about it like that and i think and also you have to think about the purpose if you're trying i mean if a virtue signal is propagated through a community or a meme right a virtue signaling meme propagates i mean i guess i would say the purpose like consequentialism for me like slightly better than utilitarianism so like what's the consequences of that uh, yeah. but yeah whether it's whether it's a byproduct of something else or whether yeah or whether people are trying to game the the status hierarchy kind of because i also think virtue signaling and status signaling in our in our society these days much more correlated maybe actually that's not true i don't believe that I see them overlap, right? Venn diagram, you see virtue signaling, status signaling, a lot of a lot of overlap there. And it gets very messy, I guess. So I don't know. Virtue signaling, I don't know, like what righteous virtue signaling. I would all just take that cup out and just say I think righteous virtue signaling is good and unrighteous virtue signaling is bad. <laughs> but I think a really interesting way that most I know again, I just had this like contrarian yeah. point of view about mm -hmm. Virtue signaling, like I thought of it in the shower like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So this is very un well thought out, you know, position. But I do think it's an inter interesting one. And especially in regards to how you were trying to think about whether virtual signaling is good or bad, mm -hmm. had a lot to do with how somebody approached actually virtue signaling, like mm -hmm. why they were virtue signaling. Yeah. I think that there's an obvious case for that, and that's useful. But also, I think there's an obvious case for when people virtue single for the wrong reasons, but it's actually still a net good. Okay. Yeah, an I, example I, of this would be climate change. There are so many people, including myself, who are pretty ignorant about the actual climate science. Probably I would, if you test me about a bunch of the basic facts on climate science, I would fail. But yet I still see it as a really big and priority. Mm -hmm. I also take actions, which are in part because of animal suffering, but also in part for environmental reasons like eating don't no, I don't eat beef. I don't eat factory farm uh, um, animals in general, which reduces my carbon footprint by a huge degree. Yep. I don't really use my car on the weekends, only during the weekdays when I drive. So I'm pretty ignorant, but I'm still doing a lot mm -hmm. for for carbon. I'm actually probably doing a lot more than your average person who is actually more active in climate movements, simply because of the veganism. My point is that you have people who show up for like climate marches and then they'll buy mcdonald's yeah and then it's just like so bad 
But it's still good that they're showing up to the climate march, even if they're ignorant and they're not, they're doing a lot of actions that are hurting their own movement. Well, I mean, I would, I would then question, you know, what's, how, how much good do you actually get out of the climate march? Does that effectively, you know, does that have an impact on policy or society in a way that actually reduces the amount of carbon emissions? Because I've, so I imagine the entire goal would be to affect policy, but like percentage that actually shifts policy, it might actually be counterproductive. Yeah, I, I definitely worry that a lot of stuff like that is counterproductive because then people are like, oh, look at these, yeah. you know, stinky hippies who are going to, you know, try to take away our God-given right to drive personal, you know, Ford F-1500s around or whatever. And that might actually have a net negative effect or personal guess is that it's probably more or less a wash, but... <clears throat> I think the hypocrisy of it is incredibly toxic in terms of messaging. I think SBF is a big part of this. I mean, we can kind of tie that in because no, just signal. I mean, he signaled he was crazy, but he was calling what he was doing effective altruism, right? And yeah, I don't think it was exactly altruistic what he was doing. <laughs> so some hypocrisy there. But say, say you're people who show up to the climate march, but then eat McDonald's. I mean... I don't know. For some reason, in my head, it seems worse if they were then going to like take pictures of themselves with animal welfare activists and then post that shit online, right? Like going and showing up at the march is one thing, but then signaling through the metaverse or the infrawebs or whatever. For some reason, for me, that type of hypocrisy, I don't know. It, it just feels grosser, you know. Like if you're because it's the, it's the signaling that matters, right? The virtue so shining up for the march, I would say, is virtuous. In some way, I think you could argue that eating McDonald's again on the same thing, probably not kind of a wash. And you, but then if you're, but then but say then you post pictures of yourself online, but then someone else then posts a picture later of you eating McDonald's at the same thing. Like, I think that's expected value on that is probably maybe lower than doing nothing, but it's all, it's just case specific. I don't, I don't, I'm not smart enough, I think, to make general. I don't know if I don't feel smart enough to make generalizations. Of that. I think, go ahead. Are you thinking about that from the inside point of view, from your inside point of view or from the outside point of view? I am thinking about that. I was thinking about that more from the outside view. From the inside view, I also think it's bad because it's something that Orwell talked about actually in 1984. He called it double think. And it's this idea where you can actually have two contradictory narratives about the world in your head. And you're able to hold them both without any distance between them. I would like to point out a double think in this conversation. Perfect. Earlier, you mentioned purity tests, right? Mm -hmm. I think purity tests are a net bad, but mm. they're good if you don't want climate protesters eating McDonald's. <laughs> right? I think we did nuance what I said Interesting. earlier. Interesting. I'm just pointing no, out that I, I, conflicting, it's not so much a double narrative in the sense of Orwellian and that mm -hmm. they're just completely bullshit. But I do think there's a really interesting conflict there that I don't have a great answer for. I mean, I think I have something of an answer there where, to me, when I think about like purity tests, and to be clear, I'm not a vegan. I do eat at McDonald's from time to time. More of a tax carbon and use that money to, well, really, do the anything. best thing would probably be, the best thing would probably be like some sort of stipend to minimize the negative impacts on lower income people. But to sell it for policy, you'd probably just use that to pay down the national debt or something. But definitely looking at it from an economics perspective and saying, you know, that's the approach. But to broaden that out beyond, you know, our specific example of, you know, climate protests or whatever, I think what matters more is getting people moving in the right direction a lot of the times rather than 
arguing over extreme details of policy. You know, I, what I was thinking about earlier and what Andrew, you know, was, you know, smiling at me about was like libertarian politics is notorious for insane degrees of purity testing where it's like, if you believe that the government should like, you know, prohibit private citizens from owning, owning thermonuclear weapons, that means you're a communist kind of stuff. Right. Like, <laughs> like you don't see this the a second lot. Second Amendment, bro. But you do see this. You do see people yeah. take that. I mean, I'm, I'm still have quite some very good libertarian views in many areas, but I kind of agree that, you know, thermonuclear weapons should maybe not be owned by private citizens for, you know, some basic precautionary reasons. And, you know, that's an extreme example in the other direction of like a very extreme purity test. But you see this to lesser extents where it's like, you know, in, in just, you know, the libertarian community as an example, you know, any idea of like maybe there's, you know, a net argument, a consequentialist argument for why we should limit individuals' freedom in any way at all is often seen as proof that you're not a real libertarian, you're our enemy, you're, you know, a communist or a yeah. fascist or whatever. And then they, everybody yells at you, even though you agree on, you know, 99% of the day-to-day -day political issues. And I think the same thing applies in lots of different communities where if you are really, really emphasizing, you have to agree with us on very, very specific points all the time, that's not very good for retention. And it's not very good for onboarding. It's good for retention to an extent in that once you get people past a certain point, they stick with you. Yeah. But, you know, and, but as, you know, kind of going back to stuff Kowski wrote about in the sequences with, you know, the, the cult sequence, effective death spirals, evaporative cooling, you get a core group that's very, very into the thing, but you, everybody who doesn't agree leaves. And so you don't grow the movement. You don't get people on board with it. And I think that if you are focused on, you know, trying to expand your real world impact, you got to be willing to, you know, accept that not everybody's going to agree on everything, at least not right away. And scaring them off is not a great thing. And I, to bring it back to virtue signaling, mm, sure. I think a lot of virtue signaling alienates new people who don't know what's going on or haven't fully agreed or, you know, haven't fully bought into the mindset. And if, you know, if, if you are, you know, s talking about how you're super virtuous and you donate all this money to, you know, low income people or whatever, that can be really intimidating to someone who's coming in, doesn't know what's going on and feels like they're being told they need to take a significant decrement in their standard of living to be a good person. That, that's going to scare them off and they're not going to want to engage with that sort of movement. Whereas if you're looking at somebody, if you're trying to reach out, especially, I mean, EA is very popular with young people. So if you're reaching out to people who are still in school or just starting out and you're saying, hey, maybe think about giving a certain percentage of your income to charity from the beginning, you know, you're not even going to miss it. Yeah. I thought of a steel man for inside view of why it's good to go to the march, but then eat McDonald's. Uh, I want to hear that. Yeah, cognitive biases. One of them is called consistency bias, where we generally have a bias towards if, if we think someone thinks of us this way or we have like someone has an opinion of us, we like to try to be consistent across time in relation to that. Like if we've acted with someone in the past, there's kind of a bias towards being consistent in the future. So if you show up to the march and then that's the big thing, right? Then in terms of consistency bias, even eating the McDonald's or whatever, if you show up for the march, that's a stronger signal. And so even showing up, you're signaling that there's going to be some kind of carryover probably with the consistency bias kind of causing you to be more consistent with the behavior of that kind of group or ideology in the future, possibly. So just going. So I guess the alternative is that you would still be eating McDonald's, but you would not be attending. The yeah, totally. Or yeah, just going 
showing up at an event like that and kind of pretending like you're part of the in-group, like I think that changes behavior and people then kind of feel more part of the in-group, even though they were maybe faking it in the beginning. Does that make, does that make sense? I feel like that's kind of what happened to me, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> does make sense to me. But that's, but then the consistency bias thing, if you show up to enough marches, like you're going to be, you're probably going to think more like those people at those marches would be my guess. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing is that if you don't get pushed out of the movement, you're yeah. going to get over time. Okay, there we go. Yeah, no, no, sorry. I was pointing at you as like, yes, as the purity test yeah. and then retention versus attraction. Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, yes and no. I, okay. I think just one idea I would like to throw out there is that all these ideas, purity tests, virtue signaling, not virtue signaling, not having purity tests and being more lax, I think they're all useful in certain contexts to certain degrees. Because there is an issue if you have a large group of people who are show up to protest who are not actually willing to take action. Martin yeah. Luther King complained about moderates and how they weren't taking yes. enough action. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, animal rights movement didn't really have any successes, any major successes until about the 1970s. And, uh, and I don't have, you know, hard quantitative data, but one of the people who is kind of who's thought to be responsible for the modern animal rights movement is Henry Spira. And one of his key observations was that there's so much infighting and there's not enough movement. And his first activist wins were kind of small. There were ending these very weird sexual experiments on cats at the Museum of Natural Science in New York. And he saved maybe, I want to say somewhere in the ballpark, three to 21 cats. And I believe this was a campaign that took years, you know, so according to some EA estimates, that would be a very ineffective campaign, but it created momentum and it got international movement going. So besides that, I think the interesting point there is that you do have infighting is really bad, but on the other side, you also have people being too lax. And like one reason purity tests could be good is because there are some things with moral movements where there's a huge cost to them individual is not really going to be rewarded in any meaningful way other than being a good fighter in a moral cause. And you kind of need that, that motivation to get you over that hump. And so, yeah, I don't know. In my mind, none of these things are... And they're building experience. Yeah. So none of these things are necessarily bad or good. They, I mean, broadly speaking, I think if I, had, if I was more intelligent and I spent more time researching this, I could give you a, a better directive of what is good where and what is good what is bad where but broadly speaking i think all of these have their time and day i mean kind of how we started off this conversation i think one issue is that there's not enough ea's virtue signaling virtually signaling could also be done in many ways right there could be the way where you say hey you have to pledge to give to give me what we can 10% of your income. Also, you got to be thinking about why are you in this career? You got to change your career, right? There are going to be a hardcore set of people who look at, who take up basically all they can do, most of it, but they're going to be also other people who are just much more casual and you kind of need both. You need yeah. like concentric rings of like totally. intensity. Yeah. Charles Vogel talks about this in his book for sure. No, you need, you need barriers. He talks about barriers because if you're going to go do hard work, you need to know everyone else and with you is also going to put in the time and sacrifice and not and not just leave you hanging when shit gets rough, right? Yeah. That's kind of the big the big yeah. lose scenario for the individual is like you trust you have backup and then you end up at the front line and then you have no backup you're just hanging there by yourself, right? I That's think, uh, I mean I think there's value in like having some kind of standard cuz like mm -hmm. if I say I'm an effective altruist but then I don't donate anything or I don't do any kind of yeah. work or I don't even try to 
yeah. get other people involved, like, way would I be an effective altruist? And to some degree of like social proof, if you will, you know, makes sense to expect that. I think the people only use the term virtue signaling effectively, obviously. Yeah. People don't use it to, they don't point to something they like and say that that was but, virtue Yeah, the signaling. connotation is that it's ineffective. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think the problem is the idea is that you are trying to grab status in the community or something That's like contributing. that. Or at the very least, you're trying to do it in a very negative way where you're trying to like put other people down or target somebody. You know, usually it's like, oh, look at me. I'm so good. It's like, that's something everybody should be doing. That's usually the context that I see the word, the term virtue signaling thrown around in. So I think that it's good to show like you're doing the work. You know, and I think it's good to promote other people doing the work. Yeah, so I think it, like if you're like a selfless person, but like due to pressure, you're like you're saying, oh, I'm de- I'm donating like 10 percent of my income, but it's only like it's purely so you can look good to someone else. I think that's actually a good thing, even though you're like you're totally selfish. You have like no like thought for any other people. But I that's, mean, that's, that's a, that kind of the literally idea. literally like, signaling. It's pure signaling. But I mean, um, it's kind of the idea behind you know, charitable tax deductions as well as to make it, you know, use people's selfish interests to do what you want them to do. And I think you could argue even that the entire edifice of, you know, modern capitalism is built around getting people to do stuff for other people voluntarily. Yeah. Just because it's in their own interest. Yeah. Gift economy is something that's pretty interesting in this. Like you think about the fiat economy and then there's a gift economy that kind of runs alongside it, like potlatch. Like it's a very old social technology but the idea is like the more you give away like the higher status you are right like and that's basically just straight up part of the deal like in the community native peoples this was a thing you you hear stories about in these communities people basically bankrupting themselves by giving away basically everything they had to the community but then they ended up poor but also the highest status person in the community yeah kind of this trade-off between issues with that if you don't have like a model of productivity yeah well, the freeloaders are going to come into that, right? As And be like, oh, yeah, you're high status. Thanks for giving me all your stuff. And then, like, you know, that's not and not real. But, I mean, I don't know. It's, I think it's like, where does the stuff come from? It, it has to come from somebody where, and especially in a, you know, pre-modern economy, usually that meant someone else's manual labor. So I definitely have some... There's a sci-fi take on this. Alice, Kim Stanley Robinson, the Mars trilogy on Mars. Two economies develop. One is fiat based on one mineral and then the gift economy is actually based on a different chemical substance hmm. so they run them as two different mediums of exchange which is kind of interesting i haven't read it in a long time so i don't remember his yeah. his writing well enough to I describe will, it i will confess that i only read like the first like 20 percent of red mars and yeah that was when i was that, too young to understand it yeah it it holds up it does it's long i think it's really i think his writing is phenomenal but so yeah. one thing that i've heard from vegan activists who are looking at towards the environmental movement as an example to try to take some lessons from is Extinction Rebellion, which is kind of a more very, which was originally a very like extreme, like militant. Militant would be, would be something that was often described to them. They've now, when you think they mostly do it in Europe and the animal activists I listen to are in UK. So they uh, mentioned when they go to these protests, they don't tell you, hey, you have to be vegan anymore. You can't take flights anymore. Yeah. They're just like a much more moderate 
approach to like getting into the movement. I think that's uh, smart. And I also respect them a lot, Extinction Rebellion. Like I followed them for a long time. I think that's really important. I'm, with I'm not I really think, aware of them. So I'm not, we don't have to go into yeah. that. But I think the interesting part is that, hey, they realize, okay, we're going to go really extreme. That didn't work. Okay, we're going to try a little bit more moderate. This seems to be working. I think that's the proper approach. I yeah. don't know if the more militant and extreme approach is necessarily wrong. I also don't think necessarily being more moderate is wrong. I think it really depends on the circumstances because there are things today in modern like conventional morality that people get heavily shamed for. And that is probably a really good thing because it really is unfair to some people, but it is a really good thing because it keeps that behavior as a relatively rare thing. Now, if you're some kind of niche moral movement who hasn't really got ubiquity, cultural ubiquity, then that's not that smart of a move because you just don't have that much power to shame people. And that's that's one thing that definitely feels very weird is, and this often comes with the purity testing, is that people are trying to shame you for not being their very specific brand of yeah. behavior. And it's like, that, that puts people in the position of trying to choose. And this is why people talk about cultishness, is that you're in the position of trying to choose between this group that's very weird or society at large, which is where all your other connections are. It's where your boss is. It's where your mom and dad are. It's where your friends are. Or you could be with this other group. And that's um, one of those... Not going to appeal to anybody. Exactly. If you make... And you're only going to keep the people who it has some real value proposition for because otherwise you have the effect of cooling effect. And I think that being cognizant of that when you're trying to build any kind of social movement or political movement or whatever is very important because if you get you know, a hundred hardcore people, but the rest of society doesn't do go along with your program, what have you accomplished? Now, if your group was, your goal was to get a group of a hundred hardcore people who are really into the thing you're into, that's fine if, you know, you're a, if you're like a social club or if doing you want, a hobby. If you want to like uh, shoot sulfur into the air, you only need a hundred or so people. Or... Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking more like a fandom kind of thing okay. where it's just like, yeah, if I mean... you want a hundred people who are going to watch Rocky Horror Picture Show with you every weekend, that's great. <laughs> you don't need the whole the entire society to watch Rocky Horror yeah, with you. Permissionless. If, if you're trying to, you know, get everybody on board with changing society in a particular way, if you want everyone in society to watch Rocky Horror with you every weekend, that's going to be a little bit difficult and maybe you should just start with getting them to watch it once <laughs> for the record i've never seen the rocky horror picture oh uh, i i have yeah, i've gotten water and things thrown thrown yeah it's I, fun i don't know it's not my shit yeah i think it's a really like this delicate balance that it's really hard to subscribe like general rules to i think that's probably like when you hear like the discussion around virtue signaling that's maybe the one thing that i'm like confident is annoying and is wrong it's just more general rules instead of trying to look at things on a case-by-case -case basis or closer to a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. Now, heuristics we follow, they're, they, they're, they're labor-saving, right? These heuristics, cognitive biases, there's a reason they exist. But no, part of the rationalism thing, right, is trying to figure out and I mean, become I, less wrong every day, right? I, I think mean, that's I, one of my favorite ways of thinking about the whole community is just like so many EA people trying to be less wrong every day too, right? Like we all, we all are and then are willing to show up and talk to people about it either online or in public, generally. I think... Going back to, you know, to build on what you just were saying about why we use these heuristics. I mean, when you think about it in terms of like the ancestral environment, mm. they say, you know, uh, what it was like in a hunter-gatherer, even an agricultural, you know, society. A lot of these heuristics kind of make sense in that context. Yeah. Like one thing I always look at is like social availability bias. And this shows up a lot when it comes to, you know, 
political movements that are heavily online where it's like, if everybody you follow on Twitter is a hardcore environmentalist, then you're going to have this impression that that's a very popular viewpoint. And maybe if, if you're a young person who doesn't go outside a whole lot or, you know, for there was a year there where nobody was going outside very much. Yeah. You can definitely end up in the situation where you assume that your position has a lot more traction than it actually does. But the thing is, that's because everybody you see agrees with you. But in, you know, an agri you know, a small society, a small town, you know, farming village or a hunter gatherer band. If everybody you see agrees with you, then yeah, literally everybody in your society does agree with yeah. you. Yeah. And if 10 people are yelling at you, that means you're probably going to die. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think on one note on that, I mean, this is kind of aloof to our conversation, but somewhat related. I do think that people should uh, be more willing to get out of their information group into information like circles as well as friendship groups. I mean, I. So also, you know, we're talking about, you know, how people dealing with like pragmatic realities, they'll, they'll lessen or increase their views based on that. One thing that I found that's really helpful for me being less reactive to people who disagree with me and have different moral views is if I find somebody interesting and attractive, I automatically become way more reasonable and way less reactive. And <laughs> that is, and I, when I first realized that, I was like, oh my God, like this is such motivated reasoning. It's disgusting. And then I realized that, well, wait a minute, my natural state is actually also pretty unreasonable and I could do better. I, instead of seeing this as bad, I should just treat everybody as, you know, interesting and I'd be a much better, much more reasonable person, you know? But so I think it's, it's interesting to think about. So like, for example, when it comes to that, I am not, it's not a hard rule for me for somebody to have a same moral view as me simply because there are less people in the world who have that similar interest as me. If I did do that, I would have to move to some place that has a ton of EAs and only date from that very narrow dating pool. I'm not really interested in doing that. So that means that I have to kind of drop the requirement that they have the same views as me, right? Now, this isn't a, I'm not coming from this from a very well thought out philosophical moral point of view. I'm just dealing with the pragmatics in front of me and making a decision. Which I think also highlights another thing that I think activists should be appreciative enough that even if they're very far from the norm on something, yeah. they are doing, they're making decisions just like myself, very banal, pragmatic reasons and not morally righteous reasons, right? And they should be appreciative that other people are making similar decisions and maybe they should be a much closer to where that extreme person is. But nonetheless, the thinking about it is is more similar than the active than the very reactive activists would like to think. Yeah, and I mean, um, personally, I feel like I'm the only person in the world who thinks the way I do. It's just one, you know, this is based on observation yeah. rather than things. So it's like, I'm not going to move somewhere to find people like me because I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who, if there was a country of people like me, it would, this would be a very different world or even just a community. They exist. They're just probably under the Arctic somewhere in an undersea. So yeah, they'll, they'll come find you. So it'll be like a, the Citadel of the Ricks. I've been waiting whole, my whole life and they have the, not... The, the Citadel... Arrest, the aliens have not abducted me to go back to my home planet. Yeah, the, the Citadel of the Nathaniels. Will, uh, they will be getting in touch. Wish. I would, I would like to push back on that a bit because from my experience dating as well as like finding like people who don't run in our intellectual circles, if you stick not to 
ideas, but you stick to how people think about ideas. I think I find once I searched, that was my like frame of mind switch. I ended up finding a lot of dates, a lot of people in general who are much more in line with a lot closer to my thinking, even if they have different points of view. It's actually quite shocking to me how many like um, people I date are like so open-minded and like when I was much younger and like much more like depressed and things like that and didn't go out as much, I just had this very like, you know, ugly view that there's like, I am so different and that other people are just intellectually like not where I'm at. And it was not just, you know, disgusting. It was also wrong. Like, I think a lot of people are closer, but they just might have not have been exposed to the simple ideas. There's also good reasons not to have the views that I have. Like there are just some things that are, you know, opposing arguments or closer to each other than I would like to admit, you know? So there's this thing that are just, a, this is a very online community. And I think it would be a great thing for people to get out more and just get in the real world. We're hundred percent right about that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, uh, we won't talk about my middle school experience. <laughs> I upset a lot of people by just saying what I was actually thinking. But I think, um, I don't know, like, I feel like I have default settings. And then I look at the rest of society, I'm like, very clearly, I do not. <laughs> Either that or there was some stage at the, like, soul factory where, you know, somebody forgot to flip all the switches and they just left me as the default settings on everything. But I, I'm pretty sure that's not actually right just by <laughs> taking an outside view and saying, yeah. am I the only normal person in the world? Or, you know, maybe I'm the one who's different and the children aren't the ones who are wrong. <laughs> maybe I'm not the one who's out of touch to uh, quote the meme. Uh, Epistemic humility. No, I think we've been talking about that a lot in different ways, you know, just being, yeah. Do you have a monopoly on the truth? Probably not <laughs> in any given situation. I, I catch myself on that one too when I'm getting angry, right? And yeah, like relativism, you know, like just, yeah, I am, I am flawed. I am I'm kind of an idiot sometimes. <laughs> I probably yeah, I mean, don't have a monopoly on the truth. I mean, for me, it's just the fact that I've observed myself change my mind so many times yeah. over the years about different topics or ideas. I mean, there's plenty of stuff I still, I'm convinced is true. And it's not like I'm just changing it, you know, with the w shifting of the wind or whatever. It's like I'm, I'm updating in response to evidence or logic or theory. But definitely have seen, you know, in myself that often I think something and then it turns out to be wrong. And the appropriate response is, you know, you should have some degree of skepticism of new ideas, but you should also apply skepticism to the ideas you already have and update when the evidence you know, shifts in that regard. But that makes sense that, it, that dating has been a lot better with, with the things you described. Because I think, yeah, going into a date and just being, yeah, having some humility, you know, like maybe this person is smarter than me. Maybe they are well-educated on all these things, like just really like not prejudging, you know, trying to get rid of the prejudice that you are way different and that so many people are so much unalike, right? That we are all more unalike than we are alike. And also just to, you know, further emphasize that, that it's not like something that is super, like once you make that switch, it's that switch forever. It's, yeah, it's totally. a constant battle, just like humility is. You know, yep. like you always always have to check yourself to be humble. You're never just a humble person. No, you lost um, actually. If you if you are a humble person, you are by definition not. Basically, I think. I think pe many people be willing the same to say that, right? Mm -hmm. It's true. But again, we have to think about what actions are we actually taking mm -hmm. to humble ourselves. And I think, like, imagine every time I make a critique somebody who i think is not moral enough even if i'm even if it's a good critique even if i'm coming at it from a good place there is some percentage of error i mean some quantity of arrogance that increases because of it. yep. it's just a it's just a occupational hazard of being an intellectual and moral person 
And so it's just like you have to have regular things that spring clean the air against the myop. My mop. Myopic. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got to spring clean that every once in a while. And I don't think most people have systems, have discipline, like exercises that they do regularly to challenge those things. I know I don't. I have some things that kind of do that, but it's some. It's an area that I feel that I'm very vulnerable in, and I need to like set some systems in so those things are regularly kind of. Has up. has when has the the thought gym come up at all? Oh, we haven't mentioned thought gym. Uh, you just uh, that's how we met initially. I want to just talk about this thing. Uh, great idea, and I think I, it should. I can follow up with some of my. Yeah, that would be that would be awesome. But before we do that, there's actually one more point that I want to mention about the whole cult and social thinking thing. I don't like in order to like. I think like there's this kind of meme in biology that everything, a lot of things end up evolving into a crab-like form. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that's also true of like a lot of intellectual communities in that they might not necessarily become cults, but they come cult-like in many regards. Well, I mean, there's the the phrase, every cause wants to be a cult. I don't remember if that was in the sequences or where no. I read it, but that's, that's something that people have mentioned. It's an idea that's out there. Yeah. It's well, very easy for an organization or a cause to become cult-like. And I mean... I think, uh, I think Yudkowsky's big, you know, contribution when he was talking about this in the sequences was explaining more concretely what the mechanisms are as opposed to using cults as just an invective mm. that doesn't have a very clear definition. And he was getting more operational with it. That, w- that was something I appreciated, at least. I have not read the, that uh, part and I, I don't know that quote. So this might be something that you're already familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I, one thing I just wanted to say is that it's I think it's huge value in terms of decreasing your cult lice and your your group thing by not even getting a different intellectual community but just doing something that isn't based on intellectualism one because you develop an identity of what you're proud of and also shameful of and just kind of all the different you know complexities of an identity that's outside of intellectualism that allows that intellectual identity to breathe and relax a little bit more but you're also exposed to people who are just on a totally different like mindset as yourself, which is just interesting and sobering in and of itself. But it's also sobering because you could notice a lot of the intellectual and moral virtues that you considered so ubiquitous with your groups in just a random fitness group or just a random mental, random therapist. Like there's this one therapist, uh, this is actually not even that crazy. I mean, there's this therapist on uh, YouTube she had this really interesting video about reactiveness and all that kind of stuff. And one one big thing of it was just like, hey, you need to like be honest with yourself and actively seek out disconfirmatory evidence. She didn't put it in those words, but that's what she was saying. And that's a huge part of CBT, you know, therapy and other things like that. So I think it's just very interesting to note that even these core things that we consider part of these communities, you can find in very average and common communities outside of them. So you still want to like check in and see how much of an outlier you are from time to time? Well, no, not that. That's an aspect of it. Oh. But also just finding that you have a lot more in common. There, I mean, you're, you think makes these groups so unique right. is, is they are unique, but they're not as unique as you think. And they're much they're more common in general society than some very online loner kid who's going right. to be about it's, it's that. It's actually yeah, normal. Yeah. It's just not broadcast, so you would never know about it. I don't know. I, that yeah. Maybe I just don't have the social skills to tap into that aspect of people, but that has not been my personal experience. I feel like uh, most groups I'm in just are not... They don't... might be using different terminology here, though, uh-huh. where it's like, 
what are your interests? What are your methods? What is your level of intensity about it, if you will? Like your yeah. passion for it? I think that probably I've got all those turned up to maybe not 11, but at least nine. And usually it's like you can maybe find one of those turned way up, but not like all three, where it's like people are very passionate about something, but it's not something I care about at all. You know, I was on Friday at work, you know, you know, winding down and I came over and was talking with one of my coworkers about, they were talking about, you know, college football a lot. And yeah, you know, I, I've gotten much more tolerant of interest in sports over the years, but it, it's still very alien to me that people care. I yeah. accept that they care. I no longer look down on people who enjoy this stuff because I look down on them. I genuinely used to like, like this whole superiority complex about not liking sports. And now I'm like, I don't really care about that anymore, but definitely I don't understand it. Now, those people have the passion. It's just directed at something I don't get at all. And then, you know, there's people who may have the methods, like you're talking about the psychiatrist, um, but, and they have the methods and they even have like the subject, might not have the passion, you know, and I don't want to, don't want to make this, you know, sound too strong. Like I'm, you know, this totally crazy outlier, but definitely I was, I'm pretty sure I was the, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to go, let's not dredge up, you know, high school or middle school yeah. um, because nobody, nobody was in a good place back then. True. But I mean, like for me, like when I come across people, I'm like, holy shit, like, damn, like you're way less judgmental than me. And break that down, I would say being less judgmental, I mean, judgment is obviously a factor of life and many things like that. But when we're saying judgmental, we're usually talking about some kind of misconception that is a result of the judgment, right? And like, I've noticed that like across the board. I've noticed people like making sacrifices to help other people and decrease their suffering. I'm like, wow, that's like really impressive. Now, might not be, you know, on board with a lot of the EA things, donating 10% of their income or nonetheless, but it's just like, I still see a lot of thought processes that I admire as well as actions that I admire. Okay, then I guess where I would take this next then is to ask why does the rationalist community not have, you know, much wider success? If there's all these people out in the world who share these values or thought processes, why is this still such a niche thing? Why, why does it even exist at all? I, I was, why were the sequences, why did, why did Yudkowsky even write the sequences if these ideas are really common? I, this is a yeah. genuine question. I'm not attacking you on this. Well, to be honest, I kind of consider that a banal question. One, because what do you mean? of course there's improvement in our ability to be rational and altruistic in general. Like there always will be. Like mm -hmm. the science, you know, the development of science is, I know in some ways you can kind of see it as continuous, uh, version of just humanity trying to find truth in general and just as science has been done certain ways in the past we are now finding new better ways to do science and we'll continue to do that and maybe at one point it stops being called science and called something else but like just to, just to make that argument just like we're always getting better in all of these regards one i think there are perhaps again just not a lot of people have been exposed to these ideas i don't think ea or less wrong does a great job a great job of promoting themselves that being said i'm also not familiar super familiar i don't keep well i don't keep on track of those so maybe they're doing better than i'm thinking also i think a lot of people are less wrong as you said like as you just mentioned you're not interested in sports that even if you weren't hyper intellectual person person interested in moral questions that would put you at a smaller subset of the population mm -hmm. right so people i think just having simple things in common what can kind of be called small talk and things like that is a huge part for very valid reasons of socializing. And so even if you 
even if they're totally on board with the other things, which I'm not saying they are, but I'm just saying even if they were, but they didn't have those common things, that would make the relationship very difficult in some regards. You would need some things to overcome that. That being other said, I think that one, there's a plenty of irrationality in among rationalists and among EAs. I mean, I think rationalists and effective altruists would be the first to say that. <laughs> yeah. But you also get people to say that in a Home Depot department. You will. I mean, you will. I mean, I, there's plenty of, you know, I'm an idiot kind of mindset among lots of people who really are objectively not stupid. Yeah. But I mean, there is like other people, you know, trying to make themselves more rational, even if they are doing necessarily in this way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that basic idea. I guess the, the bigger question then is that why does the rationalist community have, you know, so much trouble growing? Is it the purity test thing? Is it, you know, a, a lack of a value proposition? Is it just it's too obscure and we're in the, you know, very low part of an exponential growth curve? I'm just kind of curious what you think, what goes into that if, or what any of y'all think about that? Well, the base rate for, for movements in general is probably slow relatively slow yeah and i think uh probably the base rate of success is probably pretty low just yeah. given uh the number of attempted movements that are out there so given that disparity between uh, why isn't everybody in the current state like ea less strong is perhaps less than we would think intuitively I, I think there's a bunch of people who who were more invested in the idea of trying to become rational and then like you get the post-rationalist thing right which is very hard to define post-rat stuff yeah. Not try. <laughs> yeah. But as there's a pipeline, I think people move into rationalism and get invested and then they move out on some level. I think part of it is the purpose of ACX. I don't think there is one. I don't think one is stated. And I think and it's easy. Retar, how do you pronounce that idea? Oh, yeah. I don't, yeah, with the Sanskrit. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I've looked into that. And yeah, Scott says he found a word in Sanskrit that is the purpose. I wouldn't say it was the said it was the purpose. It's more yeah. the theme of his blog. The theme of his blog. Yeah, I think that's. I think effective altruism does have. Uh, I think the different subgroups or sub tribes of effective altruism they 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 center in on specific purposes. I think it's easier to organize people and get them to hang out, like the in group trust, when there's something everyone ideally says they're moving towards together, aligned on some higher purpose. Because then there's ways of checking whether, you know, they're trying to, again, back to virtue signaling, if they're just signaling that they're trying to move towards the thing or if they're actually taking steps to move towards culty, right? And people, we were talking about churches earlier. And it's like, I think there's a, yeah, I don't know, we don't, going into Nietzsche at this point is probably too messy. But meaning, like purpose, I think, I think there's a lack of coherence around that. I think that's one of the problems and people find that out on some level and then move into post-rat hood yeah. area, whatever that happens to be. Yeah. I mean, David Chapman wrote an entire book on that, the majority of which I have not read. I um, have not either. Um, to be fair to you, I kind of have at least something gesturing in the direction of that answer, the question I posed, uh, which relates to the, the eternal question of, if you guys are so rational, you know, why aren't y'all rich? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, the, the whole FTX explosion might have something to do with mm. the situation there. And the answer is maybe we're not so rational in the first place. But mm. I think I do kind of have an answer to this, which is that I think the people who are going to be most drawn to the ideas of rationality are going to be the people who feel like they need it the most. And that's going to definitely, you know, you're going to select for people who are very intellectually inclined, but maybe don't have great executive function, you know, people who have really high ambitions, but don't feel the ability to meet them. And I mean, 
told my you know rationality origin story earlier, but I've reiterated if you'd like. Where uh, are you making a face? Are you realizing you need to leave? Yes. <laughs> so I don't. It is a, his origin story is very interesting. I think it would make a meme. But you wanted to talk about thought, Jim. Uh, I think if you could just touch on that. Uh, yes. I got that up. Yeah, you. totally. But no, if you have to go, uh, maybe why you what it is and why you did why you're doing it. I think is probably relevant. One thing that I've noticed for myself is that, you know, I'm like, there's huge lazy aspects to my personality and that I can get very emotionally riled up and I'd be willing to be like, oh, all these people are not doing enough. And yet when it comes to, you know, just doing basic research on some things that I like, I struggle to put in, you know, that I struggle with the executive functioning. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I have found very valuable, and we touched upon this about earlier about like having exercises classes where, you know, I might be in a bum mood and I show up and for the first five, 10 minutes, I'm not feeling it. But then because it's a group, I get into it. This is a very similar idea behind Thought Gym and that you kind of show up every month. We have a present, we have about three presentations usually. And we have many more people who are, well, not, I want to say many more. We have more people that are just there to get to uh, hear the presentations. And the idea is like, okay, you read a bunch of this stuff. Here's an op option to kind of up that by one level. Instead of just reason reading about it, you organize it. You have to present it to other people, communicate it, which is in and of itself a test of your knowledge. But also because it's a specific date and other people are going to be there. It's a way kind of to motivate yourself more, hold yourself more accountable. Uh, and I think it's something that I don't think I have a, a particularly great system for it, but it is something that I would love to see more of in society generally. It's just places where there would be kind of like gyms for intellectualism. And by that, I don't mean like reading and learning like some kind of rules or cognitive biases or other things like that. I mean, actually putting in the intellectual exercise, these things that you constantly think about, like actually exploring them and trying to come to trying to explore in the opposing view. But yeah, so I mean, we all say this stuff, like rationalist EAs talk about that kind of stuff often. How often they actually put their action into it, I think is far less than how much they're willing to talk about it in like parties and on podcasts. I so mean, this is one way to try to set up the infrastructure to make it easier for people to do kind of good intellectual practices. I mean, there's definitely a distinction between the people who are researchers for a living. You know, there's a lot of EA researchers and stuff versus people who just talk about it. And I will, I will uh, share with, you know, talk about some of my experience related to this where when I was in the Kansas City group, you know, the people talk about rationality as a martial art and stuff. We had, we literally made a rationality dojo. And now I don't want to take any credit for this. This was all uh, the organizer Alec Hedke's idea, but it did not survive the pandemic. But I think it would be a fun idea and I'd like to bring it back. And the thing was, we just kind of turned into a bit of a self-help group. But the idea was to, you know, do those, you know, study the biases, try different things. There's a sequence on Less Wrong called Hammer Time, which I believe the Houston group did something with at one point because there was a channel in Discord at one time for that. But, you know, we use that as a starting point and then we develop some of our own techniques. I will say that we, have, we had a guy, he's no longer involved with the group. I mean, I've, I've left as well, but that's because I moved. Uh, he was a, you know, trained psychologist, not psychiatrist, psychologist. He was very particular about explaining the mental versus physical dichotomy there. But he definitely had some issues with some of the stuff in there. He was very willing to point out deficiencies in the uh, the processes that were used in a lot of you know rationality discussions, especially a lot of the stuff that comes out of CFAR. Uh, he had some real issues with their 
their understanding of the like actual psycho, you know, psychological and psychiatric research. And so we definitely evolved in our own direction. And I, I kind of wish we'd been able to keep that going, but uh, pandemic kind of put the kibosh on that. We never, I mean, I moved away right as things were picking up again. So that doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. I think that something kind of merging those two ideas is very valuable. And I, I do kind of want to try to do something about that here at some point in the future, but uh, obviously that's yeah. a future plan. But the idea of merging, like the idea of studying the techniques of rationale and then learning to apply them to a real problem. And I mean, it could be a problem in your life. It could be an intellectual problem, something like that. I think practicing that in a social context has a lot of value. And that's one of the things I get out of just even the casual conversation at these meetups mm. is a shared background context, you know, even even just as simple as read Scott's blog. And so is exposed to a lot of the ideas that he's, you know, working with gives a lot of you know, give, gives a more rigorous conversation than you get, you know, when you just talk with a lot of other people. And I think that rigor is probably what I, what I gain from the community uh, and what I see is perhaps a little special just to a, not, not totally and separating, unique, but a little special. Yeah. And if you're going to challenge someone's ideas it like a lot of the norms, especially from the comment section on ACX, no ad hominem attacks. Right. So yeah, talking about the idea is great, but like attacking the person, no go. Right. I think mm -hmm. a lot of public nor social norms around these things that are not rationalist or ACX based that that's very gray, that area between personal attacks and like attacking yeah, and, I mean, and, and trying to challenge the ideas. And I think at least we have a lot of rigor on that just because the ban hammer is wielded in the comment section so much that it, I think is very healthy. Yeah. You I know, mean, you know, most people agree that ad hominem attacks are bad. Yeah. But then they do them. Exactly. You know, no, they, totally. Like, You're an idiot or like whatever. Yeah, no, it's literally, it's it's a pretty, it's, yeah. That's it's, also true of anything else. Most people know that flying causes a lot of carbon and yet people take many vacations during the year. Even people who say that they're very concerned and take action to mitigate climate crisis in various ways. So. I mean, some of that's a knowledge problem of just knowing the relative weights of stuff. I find that even knowing the order of magnitude of different things is... One of these skills that a lot of people, even like, you know, I mean, I'm an engineer. I work with other engineers. I'm often, not, not to throw any shade at my coworkers, they're all great. I'm surprised by, you know, the fact that people don't know, you know, relative values of things or, and, you know, that's, that's in a technical community. You move to a non-technical community, people have no idea what the relative value of stuff is. And I think that's, that's a big part of where EA comes in is just recognizing that, you know, a bed net you know, buying bed nets versus, you know, buying school supplies in your local community is, you know, the amount of good you do with that is so wildly different. And it's just what's what's immediately visible versus not. For sure. The way I don't think I, I don't know if I gave a very concise definition. Of do it right now and I'll, I'll cut it in. Okay. Yeah. But basically thought, Jim, is we show up once a month, three, around three people give a presentation uh, and then other people show up and listen to it. And... Uh, we chat, we have a good time, and it's just a good way to kind of galvanize intellectual labor. Yeah, uh, like 20, like 10 to 25 minutes, something like that, and then a, a kind of a slideshow that that's helpful. Is that? I definitely went over that last time, but. Well, that was great, though. Fermi's paradox and the Drake equation, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it, uh, it's complex. You know, something, something on the order of half an hour is usually mm -hmm. what we're going for. Yep. And then the, usually the, the questions last, they can last like. Anywhere from 30 minutes to about two hours. Mm -hmm. That's total not per presentation, to be clear. Yeah, fair well, enough. I guess in terms of having questions about that presentation, mm -hmm. we're not just having a free-form conversation. No, yeah. totally. Yeah.
No, I you know I got invited and I just did a short one and it was great. And listening to yours on prediction markets was great. And then listening, yeah, to Drake Equation Fermi's Paradox, I enjoyed it. I hadn't been part of something like that before. And yeah, having to give a public presentation on something really focuses the mind. And you have to simplify it to the point where you can you actually have a simple narrative that you can convey, right? And and simple is harder. Also, you know. Sometimes you find out, like in my my experience, last last thought, Jim that I had a lot of faulty assumptions and I had information that I pretty easily could have gotten otherwise. But <laughs> nonetheless, I, it was a huge value for me because I, I had a big update, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a good direction. No, yeah, I mean, intellectual humility again, there it is, you know, I mean, so the, important. The, the previous one a month, a month ago that mm -hmm. I didn't bring a presentation to, you know, I was going to bring a null result, actually, you know, where I was taking some data and I ultimately decided that, no, actually, I'm not allowed to share this because uh, it's all... Uh, it's not classified, but it's controlled information yeah. that the government will yell at me if I've right. done anything with. So like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> I like my job. I'm going to keep that. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was looking at, you know, some uh, statistics about, you know, spacecraft performance parameters and design parameters and came to the conclusion that actually, no, there's no correlation here. You know, it's things I was looking at are entirely swamped by other effects. And, mm. you know, the it, it was basically just the dimensions of the module versus the weight of the module. And that's all I'm going to say. I don't think any of this is like really that sensitive, but uh, yeah. basically it came down to the fact that like, no, it's, there's not really any great correlations here because it all comes down to what you install in it. And that's matters so much more. And takeaway though was a null result. And I think that as we talked about the replication crisis a lot earlier when we, you know, we're sitting over there, uh, being willing to share that's very valuable. And I kind of wish I could have brought that just to give an example of a null result, but that's really that's interesting. No, I like that. No, I like that. I think I think that's tracks for me. But why would it be uh, valuable, right? It's one valuable in terms of the intellectual honesty, the fact that hey, not we're all proving our hypotheses. Sometimes we get it wrong, but it's also valuable because someone else might have that idea and be like, oh shit, I should like explore that. Well, Nathaniel's already explored that and he's realized it's a null result. Yep. And so you would save intellectual labor from that person who probably is on the same intellectual caliber as you, who could be using that uh, intellectual brain power on another interesting problem. So this is the value proposition for SciHub, like we were talking about before we jumped on here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, getting that information out there, discoverability of information is a big thing. Obviously, at Thought Gym, you know, we're a I don't think we've ever had more than ten people at one of these things. Probably less. No, uh, it's a limit. So yeah. Well, that's a great. That's a good size, though. Place. So it used to be. Uh, we used to have, a, I think, a higher cap, but yeah, we, it's not like we have like a huge community or anything. But I think uh, having people you know and you're presenting to and the under and people you trust. I mean, that was a big thing at the Rationality Dojo was the fact that these are people I trust. These were people I'd known for. At that point, it had been less than a year, but it had been better part of a year. I'd been, you know, doing weekly hangouts with them, you know, kind of like we've been doing here. I trusted them. I knew who they were. And, you know, at least the regulars, we had a few people who came in. And I, the fact that we had some people who came in and then didn't come back was something that I always uh, thought about a lot from like a, you know, going back to that like onboarding conversation. But the fact that I trusted these people, I knew who they were. I felt like I could share, you know, my problems or what was bothering me. And then they would push back on that sometimes, you know, we'd have a disagreement, but then we could still be friends afterwards. I think that that's similar thing with Thought Gym, where it's a valuable environment to try this stuff. It's a safe environment to try things rather than, you know, a lot of academia or whatever. It does not feel safe. You know, you feel like you got a work environment or whatever. You feel like you have to prove it or you've wasted all this time. I think that that's 
probably better for developing good epistemic practices. I think that's a great point. I mean, um, Andrew, you mentioned earlier, you'd be like, oh, good intellectual humility, right? Well, sure, there's some part of that that is, is part of my personality, but also a huge factor of it is like what Nathaniel was saying is that everybody around there is supportive mm-hmm. and they're going to call me out on my BS, but yep. they're going to do it in a respectful way. And that makes it more and more, that makes a person more willing to change their mind. Mm-hmm. So if they went about it a different way, I wouldn't be as receptive to changing my mind. That's also another thing that I think we kind of talked about intellectualism and social dynamics earlier. I think, you know, there's a certain person, which I may or may not be part of, who is very reactive, who sees, who's very judgmental, who sees things in black and white and kind of has a, either in the past or currently will probably has a free speech streak to them where they, you know, it's all about just, you know, airing out disagreements and things like that. And there isn't as much thought given to kind of basic manners tone of voice, a conversation aesthetics in general. Oh, yeah. But I think those things actually matter to a significant degree if you're trying to create an environment that is more truth-seeking. So, you know, hey, it's all good that we call each other out when we're wrong, we critique each other, but also it's really valuable to create an environment where few people feel trust, I mean, trust their the people beside them and feel comfortable. That will really help them be more truth-seeking and be open to criticism. Yep. And that with that being said, I got to go. Before I go to Nathaniel, it, I'm down to do that. Uh, I think it all requires us two people, and then, then we can grow it from there if you want. But we can discuss the details later Fuck on. Fuck yeah. Yeah, let's let's uh, chat about that at some point. Uh, I, mean, I, I don't know when, but we'll, we can just message me on Discord and we can talk about it. Oh, text is fine? Sure. Okay, yeah. cool. And we, we can go from there. Awesome. Mr. Soy, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. It's Thanks. Not, you know, not every day mr soy gets invited to a podcast <laughs> <laughs> let's have it happen more often yeah and i think we can just we can pause now for a bit we can go like yeah 